Find Genesis 24. Genesis 24. It's a long chapter. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV tonight just because of the way it it, uh, flows. Very readable. We're going to look tonight at the subject matter, God's providence in everyday life. God's providence in everyday life. Continuing our Wednesday night series out of the book of Genesis. We're up to chapter 24 now. And uh, let's read the whole chapter. Uh, As I make the points later on, uh, we won't read the large sections again. I may... I'll point out verses here and there, uh, but let's go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety uh, as we get ready to begin. It says, Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim, And made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels near down, near the well, outside the town. It was toward evening, the time that the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. 
The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban. And he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys. My master's wife Sarah has borne him a son in her old age and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, You must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, what if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. Then when you go to my clan, you will be released from my oath if they refuse to give her to you. You will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. 
If a maiden comes out to draw water and I say to her, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, Drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too. Let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, Please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver, jewelry and articles of clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, Let the girl remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. But he said to them, Do not detain me now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so that I may go to my master. Then they said, Let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah. And asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from uh, Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Other than the narrative about Noah and the flood, 
This is the longest narrative in the entire book of Genesis that is covering a single event. Now folks, what stands out in these verses is Abraham's faith. We know that Abraham began in faith when God called him to leave his father's land and his father's household and go to a new land that God was going to show him. He began in faith and now at the end of his life we see him ending by faith. He began in faith, he lived by faith, he ended in faith. A great testimony to the life and witness of Abraham. We see here in this chapter that Abraham has every confidence that the God who has led him all this way will now also send his angel ahead and provide a wife for his son Isaac. John Calvin, that great reformer, said that we see simple reliance on the providence of God. Simple reliance on the providence of God. Abraham believed that the unseen hand of God would do it all. God's hand, he wrote, may be hidden, but his effective power is absolute nonetheless. Now folks, there will be no extraordinary miracle, uh, miracle to the human eye that is, in this particular story. There's no rearrangement of molecules. There's no sun standing still. There's no healing. There's no river that that stops in midstream as Kent Hughes writes. But what we have here is a miracle nonetheless. God will bring about a wife for Isaac through the seemingly normal events of everyday life. Dr. J.I. Packer says, and I quote, Believers are never in the grip of blind forces. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. End of quote. Kent Hughes goes on to write. He says the God of Scripture is not simply a God of miracles who occasionally injects his power into life. He's far greater because he arranges all of life to suit and affect his providence. This makes all of life a miracle. God is overall. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-controlling. This is the God of Scripture. Anything less is an idolatrous reduction of our puny imaginations. End of quote. Now, folks, what we see in this passage is God's providence in everyday life. First thing I want you to note with me from the first nine verses, we're just going to simply talk about the command to search for a wife for Isaac. The command to search for a wife from Isaac. The servant is told 
that he must not get a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites. Abraham, of course, is living among the Canaanites currently. And later on in the Pentateuch, what's the Pentateuch? The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, the book of the law. Later on in in the Pentateuch, God will repeatedly tell his chosen people that they are absolutely not to marry the Canaanites. Why? Because the Canaanites are a grossly idolatrous people. Who is the main god of the Canaanites? Baal. Baalism was a fertility cult. They believed that Baal, uh, they referred to him as the storm god who brought the rains and brought the seasons. And he had a female counterpart and Baal and his female counterpart would, would have intimate relations and they believed that out of the intimate relations came the fertility of the earth. And so in Baalism, what would the Canaanites do? They would go up on the high places, the hilltops, thinking they could get closer to the clouds, hence closer to Baal. They'd get up on the hilltops and they would build altars up there to Baal and they would engage in sexual intimacy. Believing as Baal saw their engagement in intimacy it would somehow or another motivate Baal to bring greater fertility to the earth. It was a fertility cult. It was basically what Baalism was. And Baalism, again, was the dominant religion of the Canaanites. And so God told his people if they allowed their children to marry the Canaanites then their sons-in-laws and daughters-in-laws would draw the hearts of their children away from Jehovah God, ultimately bringing idolatry into the land. And if they brought idolatry into the land, they would bring God's judgment into the land. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham had come to the promised land from, Ur of the Chaldeans was also an idolatrous place. But evidently, and I say evidently, but evidently Abraham's family was a bit different. After all, Abraham had heard God's call and left everything to follow him. And so apparently Abraham knew that his own family was different. Perhaps they had even heard of Abraham's faith and they had become believers too. We're not told specifically, but we can only assume that Abraham knew there was some kind of marked difference between his own family and that of the Canaanites. And so he tells his servant to go back to his family in Ur of the Chaldeans to find a wife from Isaac. And so he commands his servant to do so. Now, what are some applications in this for us today? There's several applications. But I think right at the top of the list, there would be Paul's command to the church 
as Paul quotes from the Old Testament and applies it to the church, what does he say? Come out from among them and be ye separate. We are to be different. We are to be distinct as God's people. We are the temple of the Lord. We are to be holy. Along with this command to be holy and separate is the command that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means that a believer is not to go into a marriage with an unbeliever. Now, if you have two unbelievers and one of the one of the mates becomes a believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the believer is not to divorce the unbeliever. If both go in as unbelievers, one becomes the believer, then they're unequally yoked. But still, because they're already married, they are to stay married. That is, the believer is to do everything to be an agent of reconciliation, stay in the marriage, because hopefully you'll have a sanctifying effect on the marriage and even the children. Now, Paul says to the Corinthians, if the unbeliever decides they don't want to remain married to the believer and they leave, then Paul says, let the unbeliever leave. But the believer is to stay and do everything to stay. But again, a believer is not to right off the bat go into a marriage with an unbeliever. Now, I think we could we could expand this out to other things too, don't you? Not only applying to marriage, but what else? Business relationships. Don't go into business. If you're a Christian, don't go into business with somebody who's not a Christian. That's going to be a situation where you're unequally yoked. You're always going to be pulling in different directions. The believer is going to want to be minding the things of the Lord. The unbeliever is going to be wanting to mind the things of the world. And and so you're going to be at cross purposes. And so again, we're not to be unequally yoked. Whatever type of relationships we're talking about there, marriage or business. If you're unequally yoked, chances are who's going to be the one to compromise? The believer. Because if you think about it, as far as faith anyway, the unbeliever doesn't have anything to really compromise. They already belong to the world. They're a son or daughter of the world. They don't have anything to compromise. If there's going to be compromise, it's likely going to be the believer that is going to compromise their faith in some way. And so Paul says because of that temptation, just stay away in the first place from being unequally yoked. Now folks, likewise... We ought to warn our children about this too, right? We ought to help our children to understand as soon as they get old enough to understand it. That as they start thinking about marriage, 
they need to be praying that God would give them a believer. And we should be praying for them. That they would have the right heart before God that they would never even want to be unequally yoked. And we need to be praying that God would lead the right spouse to them. And so as I read Genesis 24, I see a strong application for us today in that same regard. Folks, why does God want us following this rule? He wants us following this rule so that we will keep our affections on Him and not drift. He wants us to be salt and light. Salt and light to unbelievers. Now it's not so that we'll be holier than thou. We, we need to be careful that we don't portray that. That's not the impression we want to give, that we're holier than thou. But how in the world will, be, will we be able to reach the world if we become just like the world? And so we need to do everything possible to guard our witness. And how is it that we guard our witness? Well, we guard our witness... By guarding our lives. We guard our witness by guarding our lives. It bothers me right now. It it bothers me a great deal that there are cases all over this country. In churches. Among so-called Christians. Of sexual abuse of minors. There was another new one in the news today. A 33-year-old gentleman working on his doctorate at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky was sending lewd pictures of himself to a minor in his church. It makes you wonder how anything like that can even happen. What is that do- what's that doing to the witness of the church in the land? It's making it even more difficult, right? I mean, we're losing opportunities with the lost because they are seeing the same type of activity among so-called believers that they see out in the world. And they don't want to come to church anymore. It's sad what's happening. But, but by being like the world, we are losing our witness. And in the meantime, what's happening to people? They're dying and going to hell. And we've lost our witness. They don't even want to listen anymore. Because the church isn't holy. No wonder the Lord gave us the command, come out from among them and be ye separate. We need to be a holy people. Abraham is wanting to provide for his son, but he's also wanting to protect his son. 
He knows that God has promised to build a new nation through him and his descendants. So he's trying to preserve that and he's trying to protect that. You know, there's other ways that parents should want to protect their kids too. I've got to be real careful here. The next one steps on toes easily. But parents today are letting their kids blow off church in middle school and high school for the sake of sports. Everybody thinks their little Johnny is going to grow up and be a superstar. And so they let little Johnny blow church off. The truth of the matter is, though, we need to be protecting preserving and protecting our kids' witness so that they will grow up to be the people of God. That was Abraham's concern. That even as Abraham had been a man of God in a foreign land that God was giving him, that Isaac would now inherit those same promises. Abraham would be passing the torch off, the baton off to Isaac... Isaac would carry on in Abraham's absence. So Abraham is doing everything he possibly can to protect and and preserve that. Now I want to mention something about this servant that we read about in verse 2. Okay, It's believed that this might have been Eliezer of Damascus that we read about back in Genesis 15. Remember what happened then? When God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. and Or, or, or your, he said, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. And, and Abraham said, God, I don't even have a child. This servant in my house, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to become my heir. And God said, no, he's not going to become your heir. You're going to have your own son. Scholars believe that he's the same one who is here in chapter 24. Who is now the chief servant that he sends, Abraham sends back to Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, what's the significance of that? If it is Eliezer, what's Eliezer now doing? He is helping to do everything necessary that Isaac can carry on the blessing. In other words, Eliezer has the same spirit as John the Baptist who said... He must increase, I must decrease. Had it not been for Isaac, Eliezer would have been the one to get the inheritance. But he, God had the promise for Isaac. So here's Eliezer who's been skipped over to receive the blessings and the benefit. And now he's working hard to ensure that Isaac gets everything that God has for Isaac. 
So Eliezer is a model for us in having an unselfish attitude. The Old Testament, the great Old Testament commentator, Derek Kidner, points out that Eliezer, if that's who this is, he says, is one of the most attractive minor characters in all of the Old Testament. One of the most attractive minor characters in all of the Old Testament. Now in verse 7, I want you to notice that Abraham has complete faith that God is going to lead his servant to get a wife for Isaac. Notice what he says there in verse 7. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land... He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. So again, Abraham has complete confidence in God. Now, secondly, secondly tonight, I want you to see the search ensues and is rewarded. The search ensues and is rewarded beginning in verse 10. Now, when we read verse 10, it says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of goods uh, from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. Now, folks, in verse 10, you need to see that verse 10 involves a thousand miles of distance and several months of time. So there's a lot of time and space gathered up in verse 10. But in verse 10, I want you to notice what the servant does. Once arriving, what's he do? He commits his search to the Lord. He prays and he asks God to reward his search. And he asks God's blessings upon Abraham. He asks for a sign from God. But it's not, it's not a sign like, God, would you stop the sun or something like that. What's he asked God to do? He asked God to work through the normal and natural everyday events. That through the normal, natural, everyday events, God would reveal his will. He knows that young women will be coming to the well to fetch water for their family's herds. This was a chore on the farm that usually fell to the young women. He knows that it will not be unusual if one of these women asks to get him water. Be nothing unusual about that. But if the young woman then goes on to voluntarily ask if she can water all of the camels in his caravan, this will be an unusual act of service. You see, the average camel drinks 25 gallons of water. 25 gallons. If the camel's dry, that is. 25 gallons because it stores the water. The watering jug of the young women, the ancient watering jug that the young women would carry and they'd place up on their shoulders, 
it could hold three gallons. So you have 10 camels, 25 gallons each. What does that mean? That means that here is a young woman who will be making a little over 80 trips to the well. Now the wells of the day, you would, you would descend downstairs. There would be a hole in the, in the ground and, the, and there would be the water. And the stair, a staircase would be built down uh, to the water. They would dip their water jug and they would ascend back up the steps to the animals and the water troughs. And that's implied here that she actually goes down and comes back up. uh, Ten camels, 25 gallons each, three-gallon pot. It takes her, it's estimated, somewhere around two or three hours to complete this task. It would have been exhausting work in the heat. And here's a young woman who voluntarily does this for somebody who is a complete stranger. So the young woman who's willing to do this will be a young woman of remarkable character. And a remarkable servant's heart. It didn't hurt either that she was pretty. So she's pretty and a woman of character. And a hard worker. And a servant. So in other words, God has answered the servant's prayer in an amazing way. Apparently, God arranged it to where the servant didn't even have to wait very long for Rebecca to come along. She comes along pretty quickly. Now, when all this happens, how does he respond in verse 26? What's he do? He worships God. Think of what he's done. He's gone at Abraham's command. He's done what Abraham's asked him to do. When he gets there, he turns to God. He prays that God would give him success in looking for a servant for his master's son. God answers that prayer. And what's he do? He pauses to worship and gives thanks to God. If, if we were to read on in this chapter, uh, for much of the rest of the chapter, he, uh, he is recounting to, uh, to Rebecca's dad and brother what all's transpired and how all this took place and how God's answered this prayer. Uh, and, and so what, what's their conviction in verse 50? What do they say? Hey, it's no doubt to us. This is of the Lord. If this has happened as you say it's happened and we believe it has, there's no doubt to us that God is in this. Folks, this whole thing is a testimony to what we're told in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tell us? 
Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Genesis 24 is a testimony to that. Now I want you to notice as the narrative continues, Rebecca's family asks if they can linger for ten more days. The servant refuses. They say, well, let's ask Rebecca. What I want you to see is that Rebecca, without ever meeting these folks, gets on a camel, leaves her family, It's only the next day after she's met this servant and watered his camels. She's just met him. He spent the night with her family. She gets on a camel. She leaves. She leaves everything behind. She's probably never been away from home before. In other words, Rebecca is a remarkable person of faith also. She's much like the man who is about to be her father-in-law, Abraham. Abraham was a remarkable man of faith. Already we're seeing in Rebecca, young Rebecca, that she was a remarkable young woman of faith. Willing to do exactly what Abraham himself had done decades earlier. That he left that homeland and went to a place that God was going to show him. And here she is doing the same thing. She's pretty. She has character. She's a hard worker. She's a servant. She must be pretty strong physically. She has faith. All of those are qualities that are going to serve her very well in the promised land. Hospitality. Think about it. She is, with Sarah's death, Rebecca is going to become the new matriarch in the promised land. She's privileged herself to be getting in on the promises of God to Abraham. God's promises that started with Abraham and Sarah... Those promises are now going to continue with Isaac and Rebekah. We're told that when Isaac met her, he married her and he loved her. It is the first time in the Bible that marital love is mentioned. First time in the Bible that marital love is mentioned. Dr. Kent Hughes closes his chapter on Genesis 24 by writing, he says, and I quote, This story and all of Scripture teaches us that our lives are not ruled by chance or fate, but by God. God is always faithful to His children. Always. Our challenge is to be faithful to Him. God does not help those who help themselves. Rather, He helps those who entrust themselves completely to God 
as did Abraham and Abraham's servant and Rebekah. End of quote. Now, some lessons I want to give you. Lesson number one, they ought to be pretty obvious about everything we've said so far. Let's just kind of gather everything up into some life lessons. Lesson number one, we are to strive to maintain purity and holiness among the people of God. We are to to strive to maintain purity and holiness among the people of God. Number two. We are to trust God to provide the right mates for our children. And we are to ask Him to do so. We are to trust God to provide the right mates for our children. And we are to ask Him to do so. Number three. We are to bathe all of the decisions of life in prayer. We are to bathe all of the decisions of life in prayer. And lastly, we are to walk by faith. We're to strive to maintain purity and holiness among the people of God. We are to trust God to provide the right mates for our children. And we're to ask Him to do so. We're to bathe all of the decisions of life in prayer. And we are to walk by faith. It's a great, great chapter. Again... Other than Noah and the flood, the longest narrative about a single subject matter in all 50 chapters of the book of Genesis.